I'm Arthur Perlstein, and from the True Suspense Files, this is Blink and He's Gone. Here is Part 3, A Blink of the Eye. The news conference was held in the coroner's office, crowded with doctors, police officials, and press. Craig Harvey, the Los Angeles County Coroner's Chief of Operations, was introduced and promptly announced the cause of Paolo Ayala's death was asphyxia from freshwater drowning, probably on Sunday between 2 and 3 p.m. Quote, The death has been ruled by the coroner to be accidental. Anatomical findings show no evidence of the body having been removed from the pool prior to discovery on June 4, 2002, at approximately 8.30 a.m. According to Harvey, the body had evidently gone undetected despite the massive search by law enforcement and others. He added that Paolo had likely already died by the time he was first reported missing. There was probably nothing that anybody could do for the boy if he had been recovered on that day because of the length of time he had been underwater. Dr. James Ribby, who had overseen the autopsy, was next at the microphone and filled in some details. Moving a body, quote, usually leaves traces on or in the body. There were no traces. Ribby added, Skin easily bruises when a body is moved after death, and no sign of this was found. He noted that the condition of the body was consistent with having been in the pool for two days. He explained that once a child goes under the water, death can occur in just one to two minutes. And Dr. Ribby seemed to be addressing the television audience when he said this, quote, All pools are dangerous. Adults must always keep watch over children who are swimming. Unquote. LAPD Deputy Chief Kalish came to the microphone next. He readily acknowledged that police had been mistaken to conclude that the body had not been in the pool all along. Kalish explained that authorities now believe the boy was not detected because aging plaster on the sides of the pool made for, quote, milky, cloudy water, creating an optical illusion that masked objects at the bottom. The deputy chief underscored that 30 people at the party, as well as Paolo's parents and dozens of police officers and firefighters, had looked in the pool without seeing the boy. The pool maintenance man who put chemicals in the pool on Monday also had not seen him. By all indications, the chemicals added to the pool slowly cleared it overnight, leaving the body readily visible to the housekeeper in the morning. The LAPD's inability to find Ayala in the pool 
caused reporters to raise questions about the thoroughness of the search efforts. But Kalish insisted police did everything they could to find the boy. Quote, We had officers who responded on their days off searching. We brought in resources from throughout the city. We brought in search dogs from other agencies. We had the helicopters there. We had the community involved. We had officers walking in the neighborhood. We had motorcycle officers. There's nothing we wanted more than to find that little boy alive. Recriminations and doubts soon became the order of the day. Deputy Chief Kalish mentioned that L.A. building and safety officials had cited the Farkandapur family for failing to have a fence around the pool. Saeed Farkandapur did not have kind words about the police investigation. He said Kalish and detectives had, quote, made the tragedy even worse by suggesting a murder plot, unquote. The only word from the Ayalas was through a family friend who said, they do not blame the police, but suggested that they, quote, feel there should have been a little more supervision at the party. The internet buzzed with criticism and downright rejection of the explanation. One blog posting, pretty typical of many others, read as follows. It should be abundantly clear to just about anyone that this official story is completely and utterly absurd. It is an insult to the intelligence of any thinking person and reveals the unfathomable contempt held for the American people by a press corps that can, with a straight face, report such nonsense. It also reveals the unspeakable corruption of a police force and a medical examiner's office that would blatantly and shamelessly cover up the apparent murder of a child, a process aided and abetted by a media apparatus that will unquestioningly repeat the most transparent of official lies. And while LAPD spokesman Sergeant Pasquariello had offered an explanation he said was from pool service professionals, that debris can sometimes settle a foot or two above a pool's bottom and create a false bottom, many bloggers were not convinced. One responded sarcastically that, quote, the layer of sediment was floating above the bottom of the pool, apparently in a perfect plane, defying any sort of a scientific explanation and creating the illusion of a false bottom in the pool. And amazingly, that layer of sediment was apparently so resilient that it was not disturbed by the frolicking of all the children playing in the pool the day of the disappearance and initial search. Perhaps, he continued, this particular pool was designed by David Copperfield. Others felt that the case and the conclusions so readily accepted reflected class distinctions. One person posted on a San Diego Tribune forum that, quote, 
Many swear they could clearly see all the way to the bottom of the sky-blue colored pool. It looks like in America, money has more worth than the life of a seven-year-old boy from the wrong side of the tracks. Did the owners of the mansion hire a PR firm as well? Among those experiencing the greatest disbelief were many of the police officers and detectives involved in the case. Captain Deborah McCarthy of the West Los Angeles station summed up reactions this way. They are saying, What? I saw the bottom of the pool. In their minds, they knew what they saw. Officers kept walking to the pool, shaking their heads, still not understanding how what looked like a pool bottom really was not. She admitted that some officers still did not believe the official explanation. Captain Richard Wemmer put it this way, It's just utterly amazing. The consensus is that everyone thought they were looking at the bottom. I am so sorry the family had to suffer as long as they did, he said. Captain McCarthy called it a, quote, bitter pill and added, We feel terrible. We accept responsibility. She herself had become convinced when she went back to the pool and saw goggles and a drain that had come into view at the bottom that she was sure had not been there previously. Sources told reporters that top officials in the LAPD had already begun questioning officers in charge of the investigation, as well as questioning Kalish's announcement on Tuesday that someone must have dumped the body in the pool. Thursday, June 6, 2002. News about the case had begun to dissipate by the day after the autopsy announcement, even while Internet traffic continued to criticize the conclusions about what had happened. Police did respond to some of the criticism by saying that, quote, all protocols were followed in the search for the boy, which began late Sunday afternoon when he was discovered missing, unquote. Police asserted there was no reason to think officers were sloppy or cursory in their investigation. Meanwhile, Franklin and Edwina expressed their utmost gratitude to everyone who had participated in the search for Paolo. Two weeks later, Thursday, June 20, 2002. Perhaps not surprisingly, attorneys on behalf of Franklin and Edwina Ayala filed a lawsuit against Saeed and Kimberly Farkandapur. The pool maintenance company was also named as a defendant. The suit alleged that the Farkandapurs were negligent in maintaining the pool and failed to properly supervise Paolo. The plaintiffs were asking for punitive and special damages, including compensation for emotional distress and loss of future income, as well as reimbursement of funeral and burial fees. Attorney Jack Zakarier, representing the Farkandapurs, told the press his clients were never told that the boy couldn't swim.
quote, This kid had no place being at a pool party when he didn't know how to swim. I'm not sure if the water wasn't murky, it would have made a difference in this case. Many in the public bristled at the lawyer's seeming lack of humanity. The litigation dragged on for over a year. The Farkandapurs hired a nationally recognized aquatic risk management consulting firm to serve as potential expert witnesses. A number of motions were made by the attorneys, including efforts to exclude any evidence of the Farkandapur's wealth or insurance coverage, and of certain prior comments by Said. While not confirmed to the press, Said's admission to reporters that the pool had been murky, and even his kids noticed it, could not have been helpful to their case. It is difficult to believe that a jury would be swayed by the fact that Paolo was not a swimmer, given that no one supervising even realized he had vanished. Based on court records, the lawsuit was settled in October of the following year, 2003. There is no information about the settlement amount, but a legal analysis suggests it must have been for a substantial sum. In the end, though there seems to be consensus on the immediate cause of death, many questions remain. Would things have been different if the party hosts had not been wealthy and the boy from a modest family? Despite the enormous efforts of police, was there a fundamental failure of law enforcement? Accidents happen and tragedy strikes poor and rich alike, though perhaps it is less likely if you enjoy the privileges of the well-to-do. Police spared no effort, and they were not alone in assuming they could trust what they saw. Certainly in Los Angeles since the incident, you can be sure investigators dredge the bottom when called with a missing child report to a home with a swimming pool. Perhaps the biggest question remains, how could Paolo Ayala have drowned in front of so many people without anyone noticing and saving him? Statistics may provide some clues. Between 700 to 900 children under 14 die in accidental drownings each year in the U.S. Of these, research shows, about 9 out of 10 were under adult supervision, if not in their line of sight. Saeed Farkandapur told reporters at the time that, quote, the part I don't understand is how could the boy have just went down without trying to make noise or come up for air? I don't understand what happened. CNN once ran a report with information from the National Safe Kids campaign about drowning that might provide the answer to Saeed's question. It is a silent killer, swimming and child medical experts told the reporters. It's not at all like the Hollywood dramatizations depicting floundering swimmers bobbing to the surface, yelping for help for several minutes. Dr. Marty Eichelberger 
CEO of the National Safe Kids Campaign, explains, As they try to get themselves out of the water, they sort of streamline their bodies, making this linear form, and it takes them straight to the bottom. They only have a minute or two before they lose consciousness. It is a silent thing because they are under the water. They are trying to get themselves to the point where they can breathe, and as they breathe, they just suck in more water. Still, how could a child who could not swim and was last seen at the shallow end of the pool have drowned in the deep end? I do not know the answer, but I have an educated guess based on my own personal experience when I was about Paolo's age. You see, I didn't know how to swim either when I was seven years old. On a beach vacation, my family stayed at a hotel with a swimming pool. I was always super cautious and never ventured in water above my waist. Two of my older brothers went to the pool, and I was allowed to go with them. It was full of kids swimming, splashing, shouting, and having fun. At one point, I got out of the pool where I was playing in the shallow water and headed out to find a chair, walking past the rim of the deeper end. I did not see it coming, and I only know from later being told, but another kid rushed past and pushed me straight into the pool where I quickly sank to the bottom. My brothers had not noticed it. The kid who pushed me must have figured I'd swim under the surface and come up elsewhere, and he didn't look. In fact, nobody at all saw it happen. Except, and I would not be here now to tell this story otherwise, for the lifeguard working her summer job. She leaped from her chair, dove into the pool, and pushed me up to the surface. I was still conscious, but required medical attention due to the large amount of water I had swallowed. I wonder if something similar could have happened to Paolo. With no lifeguard, I could easily see how it could have been missed. I had made no noise whatsoever and did not even struggle when I was submerged. The interesting part is that during the very brief moment I was underwater, I had no sense of where I was. It was as if I had been transported into a whole different world, a different state of consciousness. And it was magical. I vividly recall blue colors and bright moving crystals and a pleasing sense of wonderment. I'd like to think that Paolo spent his last moments with a similar experience and without any pain at all. That concludes our podcast, Blink and He's Gone. Thank you for listening. Blink and He's Gone is a production of True Suspense Podcasts. Written and narrated by me, Arthur Perlstein. Music, sound engineering, and post-production by Guy Bainbridge and Walls End Studios. Be sure to visit truesuspense.com for more information about this podcast and other True Suspense productions.